turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I hope you bring your Bible or at least your e-Bible every Sunday. Uh, and this morning, uh, we're going to look at something uh, that some of you may consider really basic. What it means to be a true follower of Christ. What's the evidence and what's the essence of a person giving their life to God? Now we see one of the clearest answers to this question in Matthew chapter four. Turn there with me uh, and we'll be starting at verse 18. And this is the calling of the very first disciples by Jesus. Verse 18, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. Now, you may have, you know, if you're like me, uh, before I knew where I was, I was in church every Sunday. I had perfect attendance as a baby at church. Um, you may have read through, heard this many, many times, and, um, and if we're not looking for it, you can write, read right past this and not understand the profound implications of this passage for these followers of Christ. So, what did it mean for them, fishermen, to drop their nets? Here's your blanks. I see some of you are ready. Uh, at home, you can uh, check on the memo, and there, uh, the there's also a notes tab, I think. Um, here's your first blank. Number one, what it meant for them to drop their nets. Number one, they were giving up their identity. You see, they were fishermen, and they had always been fishermen, and their ancestors had always been fishermen. It's all they knew. It was literally their identity. In fact, they're called fishermen. It's their name. It's their, a category of human being to them. Number two, they were giving up their influence. See, think about this. This was what determined their place in society, their family uh, integration and interaction, who, who they uh, were friends with. It, it included who they had influence over. This defined the impact that they would have in their community. So they were dropping, they were giving up their identity, they were giving up their influence, and number three, here's your blank, they were giving up their income. Now it's important to understand that. By the standards of their day, they weren't poor. They were actually working middle class. Think about it, just being able to reliably feed your families was a really, really good profession back then. You know, still in the world, tens of thousands of people a day are starving even now. Back then, by percentage, the peop number of people of, uh, dying was much, much higher. Okay, so um, the idea of walking away from their nets and leaving them for someone else to pick up was an enormous act of faith. So notice, when they dropped their nets, they were leaving their entire life behind to follow Jesus. And this is why, if you look at Matthew chapter 19, when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, 
We have given everything up for you. The Lord affirms that statement. And he goes on and says, and puts it in all kinds of frameworks, those who have left family, those who have left houses and lands. What you get in return for leaving everything is eternal life. So, here's your blank. What it really means to answer Jesus' call, truly following Jesus, is the equivalent of leaving everything that matters to you. Following Jesus means dropping your nets. Identity, influence, possession, everything. So this is true biblical Christianity. We come to Christ, we give him our all, we relinquish it all, and he truly becomes Lord. By the way, there is no biblical construct of Jesus being Savior without Jesus being Lord. Lots of people love the idea of Savior slash forgiveness, but there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. We sang it today. By the way, when you hear on, I love listening to secular music that uses the term hallelujah. You know what the yah is short for? Yahweh. So the millions of people around the world are singing praise to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We can't get around it. Um, And so um, here's the fundamental question the word asks every Christ follower. Here's your next blanks. Will I allow God to have all of me? Some of you probably just stopped taking notes. I don't like that question, do you? I, I like my nets. They keep me secure. They make sure I can eat tomorrow. They make sure I keep control of my life. I like having my nets. Am I willing to give all. But compare this to the results from many surveys of American Christians. You've heard the Barna Group is is one of the, probably just the most famous, but many Christian sociologists have done surveys. And if you you look at the choices that people make about how they're gonna live, the average Christian, we're talking about the average Christian, interestingly enough, Barna finds 7% of Christians who he says actually live like Christ. Show strong evidence of it. So there's always a remnant, right? Praise God, there's always a remnant. But you ready for this? It's been, you know, three decades of surveys handed to us time and time again. The average Christian has the same core values as the average non-Christian when you define core values as that which you actually make your life's decision based upon. Act not, not fluffy philosophy or ideology the way you make your choices. And they unpack that. What we do with our money, entertainment, our level of charitable giving, viewing pornography, cheating on taxes, stealing from our employers, our moral choices on average the same as non-Christians in America. The same. These surveys show, here's your next blanks, the way many Christians live as if the fundamental question of life is how close to the line How close to the line can I live and still go to heaven? Or another version, how much can I get away with and still be a Christian? So it's as if there's an imaginary line between being a Christian and a non-Christian, and for many, their goal appears to be staying as close to the line as possible without crossing over. 
This illustrates pretty easily. Uh, so here's the non-Christian side, and here's the Christian side. And um, so when we come to Christ, obviously we're not a Christian yet, and then we become a believer, and what happens is, is believers, and we'll spend more time on this, uh, becoming a believer, it's just like, you know, amazing. We'll talk about what the new believer looks like again in a minute. The new true, real believer found Jesus. Um, and uh, what's amazing is how many, for many people, that sticks and grows. But what these surveys are showing is the average, there's a drift and um, a drift and a drift and uh, drift, and um, depending upon your theology, some might even go back here. But whether you do or not, often someplace in here they go, oh, oops, I'm in trouble. Better, oh, better go to the altar. And, uh, you know, they get back here. And Now, they don't really want to be all in again. They just want to feel like they're on the right side of heaven. And so, average Christian living like average non-Christian, so they get out here far enough where they feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well on the side of Christian, the Christian line side, um, but, but I'm not over the top. I mean, who wants to be over the top as a Christ follower anymore? That's just for new babes in Christ. So, there are a lot of Christians who seem to look like this. What you do, the choices you make, how you spend your time, and what consumes your attention isn't really that big of a deal as long as you stay on the good side of the line. It appears that lots of believers want the benefits of having Jesus, but you know what they wanna keep? Their sin. I know, isn't that painful? I really struggled. I mean, I really wanted to preach fun this morning. I wanted to talk more about Lute Olson. That was fun last week, wasn't it, right? So, and Bill Frieder. Um, so, rather than being on fire for Christ, lots of people just dabble. In fact, if the sociologists are right, the average is a dabbler in Christ. No wonder the church is on the run against the forces of darkness. But notice something. This is rarely the way people begin the Christian life, right? Who begins their walk with the Lord with a plan to see how much they can get away with and still claim to be a Christian? Right? I mean, salvation begins with an incredible experience. It's a blowout. It's the new birth. Their sins are washed away. And do you remember that first time of feeling like, I'm actually clean? And it's nothing I did. It's despite he knows everything about me. I'm clean for free. Do you remember the day? Oh, what a day. I'm actually clean. So here's the key concept, write it in. Unless a person is converted in a setting where the true gospel isn't preached, right, the real gospel, following Jesus, dropping your nets and following Jesus, unless a person is converted in a setting where the true gospel isn't preached, they begin following Christ with an all-out commitment. 
right? That's how people start. In fact, here's what happens to many people. At, at some peri- after some period of time, real life sets in, right? Real life sets in, real decisions, and they discover that despite their genuine promises to the Lord, their conversion high has started to dissipate. I don't feel like I did when I first gave my heart to Christ. And they may, they may actually not feel their faith like they did at the beginning. So they may look for help, what makes sense? Look to longtime believers, look for help. Uh, And unfortunately, they often find mature Christians who are living close to the line. If they find the average long-term Christian, they're finding no difference, then they might as well have an accountability partner that's a non-Christian. They'll give them the same input if they're true, if they're honest. So uh, this is a disaster because, see, for the first time, this one who was over the edge for Jesus, for the first time, they may think that all those big promises about giving everything to Jesus may not actually be necessary as a part of the Christian life. Look at how many Christians are ignoring all out for Jesus. After all, they look like pretty good people, but they don't seem to be encumbered by all of that big promises to God stuff anymore, even if they were. So maybe they don't need to live all out for Jesus. They look around and see lots of other Christians not living all out for Jesus. And tragically, at this point, their single-minded devotion to Christ, they didn't know a lot of stuff, but they knew they were following Jesus and he had cleansed them of their sin and they are in. That single-minded devotion to Christ may begin to fade with a series of choices that ultimately lead them to look like the lukewarm Christians who surround them. Well, it turns out that this pattern of having some followers who stay all in and others who begin to slide has been around a really long time. In fact, the scripture gives examples of really two common paths for those who say, Lord, forgive me and I wanna follow you. Here's path number one, write it in, here's your blank. The person whose delight in doing God's will grows as time goes on. King David was renowned for this. And while he made some disastrous decisions, he yearned to be right with God. And what was impressive was, later in life, when you see him step out of God's will and he makes a faithless act and takes a census, immediately, he says, don't make the rest of the people pay for this. Make me pay for it, God. Take my life, and I will pay everything I have to in order to sacrifice, Lord, to return to that beautiful time with you. Holy Spirit, don't leave me. So he wasn't perfect, but you know what? Because of his heart for God, Jesus is gonna sit on David's throne. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it great? Aren't you glad David is the one whose Jesus will sit on his throne? Because he ruined his life. And then a merciful God brought him back. And from then on, he kept kept short accounts with sin. Not perfect, not sinless, but oh Lord, did I do something that's broken your heart? Because nothing matters more to me than that. I will never be perfect, but Lord, show me when I break your heart. Path number one. 
Path number two, here's your blanks. The person whose delight in God's way weakens over time and their love for the things of this world returns. Like others, they began with a deep commitment to God, but after the initial exhilaration wears off and they begin to, to uh, the, the much more challenging task, right, of following through on all the promises they made back there on the big upswing, in the long run, their hot pursuit of the things of God cools off. And in our application, we're gonna look at someone who took path number two. Here's your application, uh, here's your blanks. No matter how genuine a believer's initial promises are, no matter how genuine a believer's initial promises are, without diligence and constant renewal, their commitment will fade. Listen, church. No matter how genuine your commitments have been to God, without diligence and constant renewal, their commitment will fade. In contrast to King David, we now turn to someone who looked, unfortunately, a lot like a bunch of people in the modern church. He started well, he made big promises, but in the long run, he allowed his heart to be wooed away from the Lord and to be captivated by the things of the world. And I'm talking, of course, about, I think it's the top of your notes, King David's son, Solomon, who became king. So turn to 1 Kings with me. It's about a quarter of the way into your Bible. It's in the middle of the Samuel's Kings and Chronicles, which is a huge chunk, so you ought to be able to find 1 Kings easily. 1 Kings chapter two. Um, and uh, this is where David is getting ready to die. His time has come. And, and so, um, so he's really, really ensuring, he wants to ensure that who comes behind him follows God with a whole heart. Look at this, chapter two, verse one. In David's time to die, drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. And I think it's very interesting in a day like today to hear what David meant when he said, be a man. He didn't say anything about, you know, pick up stones and kill giants. He didn't say anything about be an amazing warrior. He didn't say anything about anything of that. Here's what it meant for David to be a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So, that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if our, sons, if our sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David died, Solomon took the throne, and he started really well. Look at chapter three. Chapter three, verse five. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, this, talking to God, of course, according to his, uh, how he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him his great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Verse seven. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. Listen to his humility. I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Verse nine. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? I think I skipped some of verse five. It's where God's saying, what do you want, Solomon? And this is what he's asking for. Really remarkable. Look at verse 10. 
And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And God said to him, because you asked for this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor that you will have riches for yourself, nor that you have asked for the life of your enemies, in other words, you know, victory in battle, that's not what he's asking for. But you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given to you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So Solomon began amazingly this was Solomon, way out there, probably couldn't see the line from where he was living. So, look what happens now. Uh, perhaps you're aware that before this, 500 years before, Moses had actually prophesied that the kings would come. Now, that's not surprising. God knew it was going to come to the day of Samuel, and Samuel was going to, they were going to say, we want a king, like all the others. Just like all the other nations, even though for 2,000 years he'd been trying, 1,000 years he'd be trying to make them like no other nation, a nation after him, right? Um, and, uh, but Moses said, it's going to come. And what's interesting is when that happened, he gave five stark warnings to show how kings should be and live. There's going to be kings, he said, and when they come, this is what he said. Here's the five strong warnings. Don't multiply horses for yourself. Don't multiply wives for yourself. That has always been mysterious to me. Um, I've been trying to understand one wife for 40 years, and I'm still usually in trouble. Um, in fact, yes, I hear that. I hear that witness uh, from the men. Um, in, in fact, probably after saying that, I'm in trouble again. Um, so, so yeah, be, count on it, right? Okay. Don't multiply horses for yourself. Don't multiply wives for yourself. Don't greatly pursue silver or gold for yourself. Don't live above the people. In other words, they're not the servants. You're the servant. Don't live above the people. Oh, that Washington would live like that. So, listen, don't live above the people. And number five, read, in fact, write out the whole law of God, and read and observe God's word. Five strong warnings for the future kings of Israel. Now, knowing what a godly king would look like, let's compare this to the pattern that emerged in Solomon's life. Look at chapter four. Chapter four, verse 21. Chapter four, verse 21. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, right? So this is a gigantic kingdom. To the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And Solomon's provision for one day, <laughs> one day, was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. That's a whole bunch, by the way. You'll be able to tell more with other things since you don't know what a core is, and neither do I. Um, so look at this. 10 fat oxen. Oh, but that's not enough. We gotta have 20 pasture-fed oxen. I wonder if they had organic back then, right? So look at this. 100 sheep <laughs> besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. My goodness. You ready for the blank? 
He collected extravagant provision for himself, just as Moses had warned against. Now look at verse 24, excuse me, verse 25. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, and from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And Solomon, ready for this? had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Ready for the blank? He accumulated vast numbers of horses for himself, exactly as Moses had warned against. Chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. Look at this now, a new paragraph there. Now the weight of the gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. You almost wonder if God wasn't doing something prophetic there. He didn't know anything about 666, but he should have. Ready? Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings and the Arabs and the governors, and it just goes on and on. It's amazing. Look at verse 16 now. And the king Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 60 shekels of gold on each shield. And he, you, if you do the math by today's numbers, this is staggering, right? Um, and verse 17, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, now he's got to have a, you know, a throne to sit on, right? So now that he's so wise, right? Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. Look at verse 21. And all, the kings, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, his house, were, were of pure gold. Why? None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Mere silver. Ready for this? Here's your blank. He, came, he became enamored with riches for himself, just as Moses had warned against. Now back to chapter 5. Back to chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now, King Solomon levied, or actually conscripted, is really the, the, the Hebrew word. King Solomon levied forced labors from all Israel, and forced labors numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon. Uh, 10,000 a month, and look now at verse 15. Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters. Those, that actually means burden bearers in Hebrew, right? Transporters, porters, right, at his beck and call, and 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project, who ruled over the people who were doing the work. Write it in, here it is. He forced many of his people into indentured servitude for himself, exactly as Moses had warned against. Remember, don't you be, don't you be over them. Let them be served by you. Now, you may say, wait, wait. The project that they were working on was building God's temple. And that's right. But did you know that the temple wasn't all that Solomon was building. <laughs> this is why the Old Testament scares people off. It's vast, it's gigantic, and there's so much detail. But do you know, in the detail is how to live all out for God. 
Look at this. There was building project number one. It's God's temple. Look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 38. Uh, And we'll see how long it took to build God's temple. 38, and the 11th year in the month of Buell, which is the eighth month, that's the Hebrew eighth month, the house was finished, God's house, throughout all its parts and according to all its plans, so he was seven years in building it. Remember that, seven years to build the temple, okay? And then back to, still in chapter six, back to verse two, to see how big the temple was. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Okay, so using a cubit was a hand, right? About 18 inches for a typical adult. Um, What you still call a hand with horses, I think, is about 18 inches, right? So using that, the temple was about 2,700 square feet of building. Remember that, seven years, 2,700 feet. And now let's turn to building project number two, Solomon's Palace. Project number two, he didn't talk very much about. Um, What was the length of this project? Chapter seven, first verse, look at this. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished all his house. So 13 years, right? And the size of this project, verse two in chapter seven, and and he built the uh, house of the uh, uh, of the forest of Lebanon, the palace, its length was 100 cubits and its width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You ready? If you do the math, 11,250 square feet. So here's the summary. Rather than making you write all those in, here's the summary for your notes. A summary of Solomon's building projects. Point number one, project point number one, he spent nearly twice as much time building his house as he did building God's house. And point number two, he made his house more than four times larger than God's house. And by the way, if you read through the rest of chapter seven, you see the outrageous opulence and extravagance of Solomon's own house. So look what was happening. Solomon began in humility and wisdom, but now he started replacing God with himself at the center of his interests and his work and his life. But at this point, he really hadn't blown it, right? Certainly nothing like adultery and murder like he had pulled, his father David had done at a relatively young age, right? He, he, there was still, a, it was a perfect time for reconsecrating himself, right? Rededicating his life to God. And now came the highlight of Solomon's life. It was a perfect time. He had completed the temple. Israel had gathered for the dedication of the house of God and Solomon prayed an incredible prayer. And after that prayer, look in chapter eight. After that, the prayer, you should read his prayer. It's just amazing. It is an incredible prayer that's of God, clearly spirit-filled praying. And uh, look with me at verse 54 now as he uh, gets into the, the time that the, the prayer stops and now he's ready to give the, pre, the brief preaching as the benediction. Verse 54, chapter eight. And it came about that when Solomon had finished praying his entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. 
May the Lord our God be with us, and may he be with our Father, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. This is good preaching, isn't it? And that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes, his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication to the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as it each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the name is the personal name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, right? That's the, that's the Lord in, in small caps in, in a good translation. Behold, uh, so that the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord, Yahweh, is God, that there is no one else. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be holy, fully, completely. That's what the Hebrew word means, devoted to the Lord your God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Wow. Great preaching. Great day of rededication. His exhortation to the people was really powerful, right? So notice at this point, hearing this prayer and preaching, if you haven't been watching for a subtle slide, you'd think that Solomon had done a great job of guarding his heart against the slide. But we've seen what had been going on subtly. Nothing spectacular. Nobody got murdered. Nobody's sleeping in the wrong bed, right? None of the big stuff has happened. Just a subtle slide. And amazingly, just a brief period of time later, turn with me to chapter 11, Solomon is now living the unthinkable. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. By the way, that was the point of Moses. For it came about that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after the gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, and it lists a whole bunch of stuff now. Now look with me at verse 6. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place, can you believe it? built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which was east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, by the way, that the sons of Ammon sacrificed their own children to. Verse 8, thus also he did all for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Notice now the pattern of Solomon's slide. Number one, his slide began with good things. Good things, blessings of God. Number two, the slide was subtle. No spectacular sin. He was still on the right side. He was still on the Christian side. I can't emphasize this enough. The slide is almost always subtle, my friend, until it's not. Number three, his heart drifted from loving the source his heart drifted from loving the source 
to loving the blessing. What the source could give became what it was about. And number four, what began with seemingly insignificant indiscretions ended up in idolatry. Listen, what started as subtle compromise began the slide, the slide from complete devotion to God to being completely devoted to himself. But you know, this is not just a 3,000-year-old story, is it? By the way, when the new age comes along, there is no new age. It's just the old age all over again, which is why we don't need a new Bible, because the details have changed, but the issues never have. Right? So, look at this. <laughs> um, the people who start on fire for Christ, who gradually drift away from their godly passion, this is the picture of the average American believer. And in the end, they have found themselves hardly even noticing that they had exchanged the one true God, the one for whom they dropped their nets for the things of this world. And here's the irony. A person who walks with God for a long time should be far closer to him than when they began, right? They should be more on fire than when they first knew them. This is where you should start, and there, I mentioned it before, there should come a point where you can't see the line, church. It's just not there. We don't even think about it, because what we're driven by is Jesus. I've given up my identity and my influence and everything else I have. Where are you sending me next, and who do you want me to help uh, serve? That should be the picture of the one. It is the picture of the one who has dropped their net. So, what was Solomon's problem? He started tinkering, just tinkering with sin. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he started asking himself, how far can I walk from God and still call myself God's? Right? How close to the line can I get and still be a believer? In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he came to a point where he said, you know, I wonder how much I can get away with and still go to heaven. Barna would have known Solomon by looking at American Christians. Pastor Josiah, come on up. See, Solomon lived a long time ago, but his fundamental issue lives on in the church, unfortunately. So, Incredible theologian, Dennis Kinlaw, his amazing Hebrew scholar, he's now gone, but his, I listen to him teach all the time, uh, still, from his days of teaching. And um, he was on a plane once, and it got around to, you know, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm the, you know, I'm the president of, a, of, a, of a Asbury Theological Seminary. And the guy said, oh, wow. So they talked for a while, and so finally he said, he said to the guy he's flying next to, he said, uh, and they were flying back home in Kentucky, so they, he, this guy was from the south, and uh, he said, um, I guess the south part of Kentucky, um, and he, he said, um, so are you a Christian? And I, I, I wish you could hear Kinlaw's uh, entire message on this. <laughs> he said the guy's response, and sorry, Pastor Kurt, I'm not very good at Southern, but you could really preach this. But the guy answers in a Southern accent, and he says, well, I ain't the whole hog kind, if that's what you mean. Now listen, within this man's answer came the bottom line to what is wrong with the American church. The idea that a person can be saved and claim to be a Christian without being all in. 
At the beginning of this message, we looked at the calling of the disciples and found that uh, what it really means to answer Jesus' call, right? Truly following Jesus, I hope you wrote it in, is the equivalent of leaving everything else that matters to you. And we found that the most fundamental question that the Word asks every believer is, will I allow God to have all of me? It's the most fundamental question. And this means there's only one kind of true believer, friend. There's only the whole hog kind. There is no other true believer. Not perfect. I mean, think about how much the new believer is like, you know, just can be totally off. But what they know is they've given their all to Jesus. They've given their all to Jesus. So as we close, I'd like us to think about the promises that we've made to God over the years. When you came to know him, what did you say you were willing to do for him? Did you promise that he'd be Lord of all of your life? How much of your life did you give to God when you began? By the way, if you never came to that point, if you just kind of thought you just changed sides, like vanilla versus chocolate, then you were never truly born again because the born again is a new creation and they look nothing like what they used to look like. So if that hasn't happened for you, today's the day to be a new creation, not churchy, not Christian, but really a follower, a net dropping follower of Jesus. But for those of us who really have done that, along the road, when you came to those special times and reconsecrated yourself, maybe even in this place, in this church, what did you commit to? Most of us have had thousands of messages we have heard where we said, Lord, that is true. By your spirit, help me to respond to that, right? We've committed so much to him. And now, when you take stock of your life, can you say with complete honesty that by his grace, you're keeping your promises? Is your heart completely his? With the disciples, have you laid down your identity, your influence, and your income so that everything belongs to Jesus? I mean everything. In these moments, I want you to ask yourself, have you begun to compromise? Have you begun to slide, even really subtle sliding? And if so, are you willing to let him restore your heart to be completely his, totally committed to his ways? absolutely surrendered to his will. In a moment, the altars here will be open. If you'd like to make sure that everything is his, that Jesus has all of you, that your greatest delight is to do his will, if you wanna make sure that you're staying as far away from the line as you possibly can, and that your intent is to get to a point where you can never see the line again, you're so far away, that that's where your life's trajectory has taken to you, that you are just all in all the time, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus can count on you in every situation, even when you're by yourself, that you're the same person, totally given to God. If that is what you wanna be, that Jesus is Lord of every detail of life. If you want to make sure that you've surrendered everything to the Lord, then I'd say, come forward as we sing together. Let's stand. Everyone stand. Everyone stand. And just come if that's what you want your life to look like.